Welcome to Grays in Hell, a podcast dedicated to kicking up dust around issues related to regenerative, pasture-based agriculture. I'm your host, Neil Tafflinger, and this week I'm sharing the second part of a long conversation I had with Chris Baggett. In the first episode, we spoke with Chris about Tyner Pond, the AGA-certified farm he runs with his wife, Amy, and how it relates to their vertically integrated restaurants. This second part of our conversation focuses on a related but entirely different part of Chris's business, as well as his views on the future of food distribution. As I mentioned in the last episode, Chris helped found two technology companies that sold to Salesforce and Oracle, respectively. His experience in tech and his passion for food led him to start Cluster Truck, an algorithmically driven prepared food delivery company. Cluster Truck takes orders exclusively online and times different dishes in each order so that everything is ready as soon as a delivery person returns to the kitchen. There's a lot to unpack, so I'll let Chris take it from here. There's no front of house, right? We're in a 2,000 square foot warehouse. Um, we have four locations now, um, Denver, Kansas City, Columbus, Indy, I'm sorry, five. We just opened in Carmel December 2nd, but um, Carmel's the suburb. It's our first suburban location. But we make all the food. We have 90 different items, so anything from a cuisine style that you want. And that really came out of scratching an itch I had on the software side, which you know is my background and how I've spent most of my career, um, and what I've learned in the food business. And um, you know, just putting those two things together to say, the way people are doing this is wrong and not not disruptive enough. And it comes back to the point we made with the farm, which is... You know, oftentimes for me, it's been very helpful to not know too much. And everybody in the restaurant space trying to get a handle on prepared food delivery, you know, again, I use air quotes, they know too much, you know, and they're trying to incrementally add this to their existing business. The analogy I like to use is is Sears and Amazon. You know, Sears should have won the internet, right? I'm older than you, but the way I got online the first time in my life was through Prodigy, Right. Prodigy was a joint venture of Sears and IBM. Really? Sears in 1997, when the internet was really taking off, owned Prodigy and was like a Fortune 7 company. It was the largest retailer. At one time, Sears was the largest company. My family was in Sears once a month for something. And they were the everything store, right? They knew how to deliver things in wagons in the 1800s, right? They were the everything store. And, you know, and I think about my clients back when I was in the catalog business, Land's End, L.L. Bean, just all these companies that when the internet came along, they looked at it incrementally, right? This was an extra business, you know, instead of being dedicated and vertically devoted to that channel. And, of course, Amazon came along and ate their lunch starting from ground zero because they were dedicated to being vertically integrated in that channel. And that's kind of the approach we're taking with Cluster Truck. Have you pulled back from markets that you initially launched in? or We were in Bloomington, and we completely pulled out of that market. Closed the box, took our equipment out. Actually, that's all the equipment we're using up in Carmel. Okay. Um, we closed the doors and turned off the lights, but we haven't abandoned Minneapolis and Cleveland. But we launched very, very quickly um, based on what was happening in Indianapolis. And what we underestimated was the challenge of marketing and building brand in a new market where, frankly, we had no friends. 
Um, you know, we had a really good tailwind here in Indianapolis that we, a couple of things. We had a good tailwind and we personally worked very hard. Like we were all at every mac and cheese fest and bacon fest. And, you know, we had a big physical presence. Plus all of our employees could tweet and Facebook all of their friends saying, hey, I'm with this startup cluster truck, order it. And so, you know, we raised funds and we went out and we opened these other cities and we did not have that same leverage. We thought we could hire people to do that for us and that just didn't work. So these kitchens just did not grow as quickly as we needed them to do. So we closed them to conserve cash and really focused on figuring out the marketing in these other markets, which we really have now so now we're back in the expansion mode one of the more interesting things that i stumbled across was a discussion you had about utilizing parking garage space Mm -hmm. was that your minneapolis location we have a built kitchen ready to go in a parking garage in minneapolis all we need to do is come in Turn turn the lights on fill the fryers and obviously hire and train staff you have an interesting business because you really connect rural and urban in a way that not a whole lot of other farmers do in in the sense that you literally operate businesses in two cultures, two different geographies, two different business climates. If you can talk a little bit about the use of space in an urban environment, uh, your views on transit and logistics and how you think cluster truck fits into the city of the present and maybe the city of the near future. Sure. You know, the way you have to think about Cluster Truck Beyond the Food is really about the technology and being vertically integrated and leveraging machine learning um, because we control every aspect of that system. Um, we know everything that's going on, you know. But I imagine before FedEx, right? And people looked at FedEx when Fred Smith wrote that paper in college and he got a C on it or whatever of, you know, a vertically integrated delivery system where I actually own the trucks and the airplanes and the delivery people and the warehouse and I build all the software that runs the entire system, right? And you think about the way that was done before. Somebody else owned airplanes and I had to contract with a bunch of different airlines and I would rent warehouses and maybe the warehouse was another third party and then of course the trucks were another third party or I was using the postal service or and the whole thing was just very disjointed and what we're doing with Cluster Truck is really replicating what FedEx did, right? We want to manage the entire process because that way we can save time. And this is all about time. And our most important constituent, and you mentioned dignity. And when we were setting out with this business and kind of whiteboarding it, you know, we looked at three constituents, the restaurants, the drivers, and the customers. And we, we, we focused on the drivers because we realized they were actually the most important, more important than the restaurants, more important than the customer were the delivery people. Um, these are 1099 gig economy people and incredibly abused and, and very little dignity. And we said, you know, what we're going to do is design a system that takes the worst job in the gig economy and make it the best job. So how are we going to do that? The way we're going to do that is by never having them have to get out of their car. So we need to deliver for free to the customer And the trade is the customer meets the driver. So rather than the driver having to park a car and go into a restaurant and wait around for food and then go find a customer, get out of the car again, go find the customer, wait around for the customer. If we hand the food to the driver as they're passing through and the customer is waiting for them, 
then we can maximize the jobs per hour that they get. Then they will make more money, they will have more dignity, and we will have a ready supply of drivers because there are plenty of people who want to work in the gig economy, but you know we want the cream of the crop the best. So with our system, A, we can get by with a lot fewer delivery people. In Indianapolis at lunch, you know, we can do 350, 400 orders in two hours. If DoorDash had 150 to 200 orders in two hours, they would need 200 drivers. You know, Matt Maloney of Grubhub said in his investor letter that basically a driver can get a job done every 45 minutes. So that's 1.2 jobs per hour. In our system, we can get our drivers four to six jobs an hour. So we have 1099 people that make $80,000 a year. We have moms that can drive with their kids in the car and just do lunch. One woman that works for us, and she's been with us three years, you know, her baby is now a toddler. But um, as a customer, there's low turnover because I see the same faces over and over You see the same faces. They're better. They're faster. They're happier. So now we need to find downtown places that are very tightly tied to the customer base. We only deliver six minutes, and that's for two reasons. One is we don't want your food to be over six minutes old. The other is we want the driver to be able to get four jobs an hour. So six minutes out, six minutes back, 12 minutes, little leeway, four jobs an hour. Our average delivery in Indianapolis is about four and a half minutes. So that gets your driver six jobs an hour. So at lunch, you know, especially, which is when we, you know, we really crank at lunch, about 60% of our business comes in for office lunches. Um, And this is a long way to answer your question about parking garages. But parking garages are very underutilized and inexpensive relative to other real estate. You know, in San Francisco, a parking spot costs $350. In Indianapolis, a parking spot costs $150 to $200, right? So real estate in San Francisco is 40% more expensive for parking garages. It's 300% more expensive for any other kind of retail real estate. So it's, um, it's very affordable. We only need 2,000 square feet, which essentially works out to about 20 spaces. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great model for the future. At the same time, there's lots of space in, 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 in suburbs. And with kind of the retail apocalypse, there's a lot of open space that is becoming very inexpensive. And you have these places like our northern suburb here in Indianapolis, Carmel, Indiana, which have a lot of big office parks and, and office buildings that are very much food deserts. People have to get into their cars to go get lunch versus in a city walking outside. You know, you can see our, our business is very weather dependent. Cold, rainy days, yeah. you know, we're, 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 we're very, very busy. The first warm day of spring, you know, we're ghost town. You know, in the suburbs, you know, we think we're going to do a lot better. Plus, you have a lot more families and people are busy, so we're very excited about the suburbs as well. In Indianapolis and Carmel, you really can vertically integrate from Tyner Pond to a delivery. How do you build uh, a farmer-to-bike courier supply chain in different cities? It's very, very difficult. And I should say it's very difficult in Indiana. It, at this time, there are no Tyner Pond products in Cluster Truck. Okay. Um, we can't supply enough. Um, as I said, my number one goal this year is to increase our production. You know, The amount of chicken wings and hamburgers we go through in the Cluster Truck's just doesn't work. When we first started them and we opened these new cities, we were experimenting with things. Um, We were flying 
ground beef to Denver on Southwest Airlines, you know, which is kind of how people deliver seafood, right? So I have a good friend that owns a seafood restaurant chain out there called Jackson, Denver and Boulder. And, you know, he gets fresh fish daily and it's literally loaded up in New York on Southwest Airlines and somebody drives to the airport and takes cases of fish off Southwest Cargo and, and it worked. But it's not really what we're trying to do. You know, Cluster Truck is now kind of off on its own um, as, a, as a very, very different entity. You know, our altruistic goal is to really create better jobs for, for both the people in our kitchen and for the 1099s, the delivery people. And we've really accomplished that in both. 1099s are almost their own demographic. You know, you want it to be a choice. You want it to live up to its promise that... I would rather have this flexibility, right? And I would rather work my own schedule and get paid every day. And we just kind of looked at all the problems with the gig economy as far as delivery drivers went at least and said, how do we solve all these? We pay people every day. We don't make anyone schedule. You know, our competitors, the third party delivery companies require you to schedule. Um, so you have to tell me today what you're going to be doing for me next week. Well, is that really a gig job then? Yeah. And if I don't, then I'm penalized. Suddenly I get bad shifts, you know, and our system is incredibly transparent and fair. And because of the vertical integration and getting more jobs per hour, we need fewer drivers. So we don't need to dilute our pool of people. And the reason why you see the same happy faces all the time is because 75% of our drivers in every market we're in started the first week with us and have never left. You know, sometimes people do move on and they find a job they like better or, you know, they move out of town or whatever. But for the most part, you know, we feel very, very proud of the work we've done and are doing to create this environment where people can have this flexibility and make this money. You've managed to create demand for food with Cluster Truck that far outstrips your ability to supply it. Um, how do you scale up production to put the quality of food that you're putting into the mug in Grigsby Station, how do you put Tyner Pond meat into burgers in Cluster Truck? How do you put Tyner Pond chicken wings in Cluster Truck orders? How do you get to that point where that makes sense? Right. I've got to increase my volume on these farms that we own um, or lease. Most of our farms were corn and soybean land. Poor nutrition, hard to grow grass. You know, it takes a long time to, to regenerate grass soil. So, you know, we're approaching, I think we're coming up on our 10th year at the farm we're sitting in, which is our original Tyner Pond. And now we're finally getting our grass good enough that we can increase our stocking density. It's all about getting more animals on the same ground. That's how you lower your cost, right? So, you know, we run a complete finishing cow cap finishing operation here. We need to have more calves. We need to have more cows. We need to have more heifers. We need to have more We've never been very good at farrowing. Um, there's another great uh, video, um, YouTube star um, uh, Jordan of Farm Builder. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but no, he's fantastic and very much in the hogs and pastured and woods and very helpful videos and, you know, um, and a really good farrower. And we've never been good at it. And uh, um, our farmer, Mark Farrell, went there this fall to Jordan's in Virginia and spent a week there and and came home and and completely redoing you know our pasture farrowing operation and suddenly becoming unbelievably productive in farrowing so um you know it's just this never ends and and you know but the idea is we have to be able to produce a lot more meat and the more we produce like anything else at scale the cost goes down 
In a TEDx talk a few years ago, you described CAFOs and uh, bioengineered foods as a symptom of an illness and that the illness was actually supermarkets. So considering that Cluster Truck recently announced a partnership with Kroger. <laughs> Are you I'm, calling me a hypocrite? I, no, I'm, not <laughs> I'm teasing it. I'm, what I'm, this isn't a gotcha question. It's more, you know, as a business owner and as somebody who's trying to uh, change the food system where you can, how has your thinking evolved on this and where do you see that partnership going in a way that you can feel good about? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And again, you know, it comes down to these ideas of marketplaces. And um, starting with Kroger, first of all, you know, Kroger is phenomenal in that they are very much trying to disrupt themselves, right? They're smart, they're patient, they're mature. We really, really enjoy, you know, working with it. We started with talking to them nine months ago, and it's not an overnight decision for anybody. You know, like I said in my TED talk, the idea that I'm going to walk across three acres of parking lot in all kinds of weather, you know, my kids are going to laugh at me, right? And the idea of that somebody else is going to be curating for me, that I um, am going to make a list and make a special trip and go into a box, that's not going to happen. So if the box goes away, the list goes away, right? You know, what we've done with Cluster Truck is created a system that can profitably deliver small dollar volumes for no delivery fee in under 30 minutes. So if you think about groceries and how will I be consuming or how will I be buying groceries in the future, I believe it's going to be small orders incredibly frequently. If I can get, just like people order cluster truck three times a day, why would I not order groceries three times a day? I see as I'm in the bathroom that I'm out of toilet paper, order toilet paper, right? You're not going to write it on a list and write down ketchup tomorrow and write down salt and, you know, laundry detergent. And then I'm going to, you know, batch this. I'm just going to order it. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the gist of the cluster truck relationship is not just prepared food, which, you know, they're in the food business. How do we feed people? And if people want their food cooked for them, they're already doing that in the stores. You know, how do we elevate that? So, but then also... How do we deliver toothpaste in the future as well? So that's kind of where that's going. If Kroger becomes a marketplace like an Amazon, right, can they become the everything food store? Can Tyner Pond products be available through that marketplace? Do I want to have, and I don't know the answer to this, but that's part of this experiment is, you know, will I have a local ketchup app and will I have a local meat app or Maybe I like the way Gallier's raises their chickens out in Richmond better than Chris's or maybe Chris's, you know. But if there's going to be this central marketplace, but there's no more constraints of having a physical store, you know, just like what Amazon has done, is that not open up the opportunity for millions of choices? So that's kind of where this is going. And these are, you know, no one knows how the consumer is going to behave in the future. But, um, you know. When I was talking about, and I still believe this, that the idea that I'm going to batch my orders and I'm going to go fill a giant cart with $300 worth of stuff that I have to touch on the shelf, in the cart, out of the cart, onto the conveyor belt, out of the conveyor belt, back into the cart, out of the cart, into my car, out of my car, into my... That's just not going to happen anymore. So what is going to happen is, yeah. is what's interesting here. 
we're, we're moving closer to catastrophic environmental failures. And we have to be mindful of the amount of resources we're consuming, which is why you started Tyner Pond. Um, but when it comes to moving stuff around, especially in cities, are we better off moving 500 servings of ground beef on a single truck to a grocery store or moving 500 servings of beef into you know, a dark kitchen and sending it out on 500 different delivery runs? Um, are we better off sending 500 servings of beef out in a dozen trucks to 250 different houses in a 50 mile radius? Like, Where do you come down on, on the carbon footprint of getting food to consumers and how do we, how do we minimize or mitigate that effect so that we're not just replacing one crappy system with another? You know, I really don't know, right? I, I, you know, I, I think a lot about like autonomous vehicles, which I do not necessarily think are the best answer and solving the wrong problem. We're going to have just as many cars. We just won't be driving them. <laughs> well, and they're going to be slower. And, you know, it's, they're trying to solve a human inefficiency problem. You know, I think about like the DoorDashes and why they want autonomy, right? Well, they need 200 drivers to do their work. We need 20. Right. So those 200 drivers are painful. They can't pay them enough. They have to subsidize them. They turn over because they've created this miserable job. So, of course, in their mind is like, how do I replace drivers? We love our drivers. And, you know, we got a small cadre of very happy people that are making good livings and do a good service for the customer and are fast and efficient. So there's nothing in our mind that says, let's replace these delivery people. You know, seeing those idling cars sitting in front of McDonald's at a drive through and then driving over to Walmart to do their grocery shopping and then drive, you know, the, you know, that seems super inefficient. You know, um, you know, Tom Friedman wrote this book, The World is Flat. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and, and he kind of wrote about these idling cars and this whole problem with idling cars. So there are no idling cars in our system, right? Your car is sitting at home. You know, our cars, you know, are constantly moving and being and to be fair, a lot of your drivers are not in cars. They're on bicycles. Exactly. 30% are on bicycles. You know, you go to China, this is all done by electric scooters. You know, we are on the cusp of the electrification of all of this, which I think is going to be better. Yeah. Um, so these will be, you know, small electric vehicles. I don't think they're going to be autonomous. You know, I, I don't know what the answer is going to be. It feels like if I can order prepared food and toothpaste and ketchup and Cholula sauce... In one trip, you know, even if I'm getting three of those trips a day or five of those trips a week, that's still going to be more efficient than me out there in my car. The parking garage people are really very progressive on this because they are thinking about kind of what does the post-commuter world look like. Are we going to have to massively expand our urban warehousing? Because right now, supermarkets are not wanting to open in certain neighborhoods because they can't get a certain length truck in. So our... Our, our three our thrice daily delivery is going to be coming from 20 miles outside of the city limits because that's where we have enough space to store stuff. Well, and it depends on what is the stuff, right? Um, and how how quickly can you re replicate smaller you know inner cities, right? You know, I mean, we have urban downtown kitchens that require us you know to have a Cisco delivery more frequently. You know, so they're coming from a warehouse to our mini warehouses and then going out. And a lot of that is just in time. So, you know, how does that affect? When I was in China, 
you know, you look at like Alibaba or JD.com or sort of their Amazons and they would have these semis come in and a hundred scooters would come up and they would literally just be tossing boxes out of the back of the truck and those scooters were making the deliveries in the last mile. Now they have really cheap labor, right? Yeah. They don't need a lot of technology. They're warehousing on wheels. They're warehousing on wheels, right? And they're just driving them in and these scooters come up and these people you know again their wages are much lower than ours so you know and they have a billion people that are willing to do these jobs that's not going to work here right you know you've got to pay a substantially living wage to people to get them to do these kinds of jobs right they want to you know again that's what we're trying to do with software is how do we make this more intelligent so we have a higher quality person that we can pay good living to that can afford to buy a nice car and have a nice place to live and you know a middle class life doing this job you know, in our system, we try and time everything so that the food is done. So with our software, we're managing our cook times based on where the drivers are. So I can see a driver maybe three jobs ahead. So you place your order and I tell you you're going to get your food in 30 minutes. Well, I know your food is going to take five minutes, right? So five-minute delivery time, five-minute cook time gives me 20 minutes to do nothing, right? So in that 20 minutes, the customer goes into this state that we call the cloud. And in the cloud, the system, the algorithms, are looking for the drivers. And they're saying, okay, here's Ken. And um, Ken is four minutes away from making a delivery, six minutes back to the kitchen. After that delivery, I'm going to drop this other order ahead of yours, give it to Ken because it's a five-minute in, five-minute out job. And on his third trip back, I'm going to start cooking your food when he's five minutes from the kitchen. And the idea is he's going to pull up. I've given him three jobs in 20 minutes and he's going to get your job, which is coming off at the same time he's arriving. Now, we also couple that with cook times of all the food. You ordered pad thai, a cheeseburger and french fries. Pad thai takes six, seven minutes. Cheeseburger takes three and a half minutes. French fries take a minute. One, two, three. We're going to cook that food so it's all done. Start the pad thai, then start the cheeseburger, then start the french fries. Is this all just being relayed via screen to the make line? Yeah, the make line, just they're looking at their station and what are they supposed to make. They never see a ticket. They don't see the order. They they're it. making what they're supposed to make at their station. So if you're on saute, you know, that could be Chinese food. It could be Mexican food. It could be anything that cooks saute. So you see your saute, you're making it, and the screen tells you. So the screen knows all the cook times, but it also knows everything that's going on. French fries typically a backup point for us. People love fries and tots because normally that's not something you get delivered. So if we have a bottleneck, don't start the French fries, right? Yeah. So now it's going to take a minute when I can drop your French fries, but I can't drop your French fries for five more minutes, right? So the system has to be brilliant enough to know all of that, right? And that's why it has to be vertically integrated. Thanks, Chris, for taking the time to talk with us. Grays in Hell is a production of American Grass-Fed Association. If you want to hear more interviews like this, you can subscribe, rate, and review Grays in Hell wherever you get your pods. To learn more about AGA and find a certified farm or ranch near you, go to americangrassfed.org and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find those links in the show notes, along with links to learn more about specific topics discussed in this episode.